today we're starting a four-week series on the gospel. And you may be thinking, how are we going to spend four weeks on the gospel? Well, I will tell you up front, and if you were with us through the Rooted series, you already may have a glimpse. The gospel is honestly not what most of us think it is. And when I look back at my, my life as a follower of Jesus, one of the most pivotal, if, probably the most, because it has influenced every other pivotal moment in my life, has been the moment that I realized Jesus was real and he wanted to know me. It was the day I became a believer. And I mean really believe. Like the very next day, my youth leader was like, Mark, you look different. Like something's changed in you. I was like, yeah, it has changed. I couldn't, I couldn't put it into words. And I still can't. Um, I was listening. Um, I was listening to uh, one of our, I guess you would call them thought leaders. I don't know that you call them that, but um, some of you who grew up when I grew up, or you're a Gen Xer like me, are familiar with uh, the, the name Donald Miller, who wrote a book back early 2000s called Blue Like Jazz. And he basically um, communicated. It became an instant bestseller among Christians and non-Christians. And he put, he put out a video this week. He's moved on. Now he's strictly into marketing. And uh, he does what is called story brand. And I do marketing. I do a lot of story brand stuff. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's using story to communicate. But it's not just using story to communicate. That story is the story we actually read back in Scripture. It's really, uh, you know, amazing how that story in and of itself is changing us. I think somebody's ringing. I hear a ringing. Or an alarm, I don't know. It could be me. I'm going to have some tinnitus coming on up here. I don't know. Um, and he put a video out this week, and it, he said, he said, um, he said I, I basically no longer attend church. Uh, and I, it's not that I'm not a, a believer. It's not that I don't believe in Jesus. But I don't um, believe what most churches believe, which I will tell you right now is a dangerous place to be. But he said something else. And he said the reason he doesn't attend Churches is because no church will embrace uncertainty the way he embraces uncertainty. He says, because that doesn't sell. Certainty doesn't sell. The ability to get up and say, this is the way it is. Now buy into this. He said, you can sell that. And you can sell that to different groups. Like one group buys into one message. Another group buys into another message. But you can sell to those groups. He said, but uncertainty, it, it actually won't sell. And churches can't grow with a message of uncertainty. And to some degree, he's right. But I would say, to a great degree, he doesn't know anything about us because I deal in uncertainty all the time, right? Uh, one of the things we learned early on is that churches uh, shame doubters. And yet, when we look in the mirror, we are all, at one time or another, a doubter, right? Are we not? So uncertainty for me is not the lack of conviction or belief, uncertainty is the invitation to go deeper than anyone else will go. Now, what I have found to be true in my own life is that I have come up under a lot of certain people that I respect a lot, a lot, and they are certain. Now, what ends up happening is, is when someone is certain, we adopt their certainty. Now, we may or may not critically ever look and examine and decide, do we really think that? And a lot of that comes from our parents. 
And then it comes from maybe, maybe it's a, a teacher or a professor or a Sunday school leader or you know, maybe it's an author or just a friend you like to go get coffee with and you just, I mean, you respect them. And so when they're certain about something, you have, are tempted to just receive it and accept it and be certain about it yourself without actually considering is this true. And I find that that's why the church is in so much trouble today is because we have been certain when God wanted us to be uncertain. Because uncertainty is an invitation to experience God more deeply and to see him in ways that other people haven't. And we will never do that if we're only adopting what other people have told us. Now, the way that works out in the church is we have shared a gospel that has said, if you will, and you can repeat it, every one of us can, and for me, you know, this has been an evolution for me, um, but you can repeat it, and it is this, if you will believe that Jesus was the Son of God and that he died on the cross and that he rose again and that you will confess with your mouth that he is Lord and Savior and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And one of the problems is, is we have so many Christians that believe that and push that, and every one of those things is true. I'm not about to take a hard you know, right or left on the gospel. You know, Jesus wasn't God. I'm, we're not going in that direction. But how is it that we have almost daily now someone who heralds this news of a God who has changed them that is embroiled in some kind of terrible scandal? How is that happening? People that we watch for decades and we find out at the end of decades-long ministries all along the way had been kept quiet how terribly they had treated people. Why is it that we keep finding that? And I will say it's because many in the church have accepted the certainty of a belief statement, and yet God is inviting us into something else. And so we're going to spend four weeks exploring what does the Bible, because I'm not making this stuff up. You'll know I have a hard time having short sermons. And usually people say that's because Mark has a big ego, because that's what you say about preachers with long sermons, right? Oh, you like to hear himself talk. I mean, that's what they say. And there may be some truth to that. But if you've been with us for a while, you know we go through a heck of a lot of Scripture every week. And the reason I do that is because I, I, I want you to see this is not me, this is what Scripture says. And I, even the Gospel, we're going to use a lot of Scripture, but we're going to use some Scriptures about the Gospel that you don't normally go to to understand what God's really trying to do. And you will find, just so some of you are like, I don't know, I've got hairs on the back of my neck are going up, I don't know if I should walk out of here right now. We're not walking away from the orthodox understanding of the gospel. So I'll tell you that right now. But the gospel is far deeper than we give it credit for, and there's a reason that people accept the belief, but they never live it out. They never experience Christ, and why we have so many people running from the gospel today. I've even got a whiteboard, which means something's going to go bad. So if nothing else, you can watch the train wreck that will ensue when I try to do an illustration, because everyone knows Mark can't pull off an illustration but I'm going to try to pull one off today because it's important. All right? So if you want to open your Bibles, you can start at Romans 10, but we're going to jump all over the place. We're going to probably hang out at Mark 1 for a minute if you want to go there. The word for the gospel, just to start off, let's just get our words uh, right together, is euangelio. That's the Greek word for gospel, which literally means good tidings or good news. 
Now, right off the bat, we have a problem because some news is considered good by some and bad by others, right? The leaves are falling. I tell my kids when they come in, good news, I'm going to rake the leaves today. Now, that's good news for me because I mean they, right? I mean they. That's good news for me. That is not good news to them, right? So, so, so news that's good to one person may not be good for the other. Yesterday, we were, we were traveling. We, we, last night, Malia and I did a, an incredible job carving pumpkins. I say incredible because we still both have all our fingers. And yesterday, we did not have any pumpkins, and I was perfectly okay with that reality because I hate carving pumpkins, to be honest. And Deidre says, while Millie and I are in the car, we should go by and get some pumpkins. Now, one person in our car thought that was really good news. Do you know who that was? It was Malia. It was not me. I was like, and you know, you know how this works in your house. And Deidre looked back at me with her smile like, I know what I just did to you, and I'm enjoying every moment of it. So we went and got our pumpkins, and we carved, and we had a good time, and they looked good. And, and, you know, anything that Malia has a good time doing, I have a good time. Well, not anything, but a lot of things I have a good time doing with her. So we ended up, it was a great night, and, uh, you know, if you come trick-or-treating at our house, you will see our work, uh, works of or our masterpieces on our porch um, later today. Uh, but good news to some people, not good news to other people. And that's one of the things we have to first understand about the gospel. What sometimes happens is we tweak the news to make what we don't think is that good sound good to us. And that's what I think we've done often to the gospel. So what is this good news that Jesus is bringing? I will say... Jesus dying on the cross, rising from the dead, and ascending to heaven, promising us salvation because he loves us and his grace, is absolutely part of the gospel. But it is not the gospel. It is part of the gospel. Now, we tend to land on that because that's an easy thing to assent to because it doesn't require anything from us. But it often also doesn't take us anywhere. And so a person can actually assent to these things and be a pretty terrible person right? But the gospel, if it's good news, seems like it ought to have a good, you know, impact on the people that actually hear it and more so than hear it, actually experience it. So we talked about this on our Rooted series, and this is Paul, uh, Romans chapter 10, verse 14. This was written roughly 56 AD. Remember, it's been a while since you've been in school. AD is basically after the birth of Jesus, not technically anymore, but pretty close. And BCE is before the birth of Jesus. So all the years after the birth of Jesus ascend. So year two is newer than year one. But BCE, year one, is nearer than year two. It goes backwards, right? Romans chapter 10, verse 14 through 17 was written roughly 56 AD after the birth of Jesus. And it says, how then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in of him in him of whom they have never heard? And how do they hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Now, we think Paul's talking about Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and we can be saved because of what he has done for us. And that's all true. 
But he's actually quoting, if you'll remember, Isaiah. Now, we read this in Isaiah 52. This was 700 BCE, 750 years before he quotes this. He's actually quoting Isaiah, and Isaiah says this in Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Isaiah is prophesying about something that's going to happen. And at this point in the life of Israel, they have been in exile from the promised land, you know, after Moses they walk in the desert, then eventually they go in and conquer the promised land. And that's where Israel is set up. And then they are conquered by Babylon. They are exiled. They are no longer in the place in which they were promised. And it is bad news. They have lost their homes. They have lost their freedom. They have lost their ability to live the way God has called them. It is bad news. And Isaiah is saying how beautiful it will be when somebody comes to tell you good news. Now, interestingly, Nahum then actually experiences the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. We read that in Nahum chapter 1, verse 15. This is roughly 620 BCE, so roughly 80 to 100 years later, after Isaiah prophesies this, this is what Nahum says, Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news. So, in other words... How beautiful will the feet be when they bring us good news? Nahum is saying, hey, there it is. How beautiful are those feet? They are bringing us good news right now. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feast, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. This is where Assyria overthrows Babylon and then through a series of events, allows them to return home. So the good news that Paul is referencing is something else. He's talking about Isaiah, who's talking about the ability to go home. And he's talking, and Nahum is talking about Isaiah, that someone is telling us we can now go home, which asks the question, so what is the good news? Is it that Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead, and now he ascended into heaven, and we can one day be saved, or we can be saved, and one day join him? I think most of us would say, well, that's the gospel as we've heard it. But what if it's more than that? And I believe the more than is one of the reasons we struggle today with our faith in this culture, is because we've accepted a part of the gospel, but not even the most important part. And Please do not hear me say that Jesus dying on the cross and rising from the dead is not important. But he did that for something else, not for that to be in and of itself its own event. That was to create and to bring what we would find is the good news. So what is that good news? Well, one of the central themes of the Bible is a moving from home, which would have been literally the Garden of Eden, into exile which for Isaiah and Nahum really was Babylonian exile. That's how they felt about it too. They did not like the Babylonian exile. They're moving into exile. But for us, we look at that as we go from home, which was with God in heaven, or with God in the garden, to exile out of the garden, to home again, that we can be restored to God again. That, that is one of the central themes. But here's, there's more to it than that. 
And that's really what we talked about for Rooted, and I'm not going to say more about that. You can go back and listen to that if you want to. Let's jump to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, verse 1 says this. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We're talking at the very beginning, very beginning of the gospel of Mark. The very first verse. We're nowhere, he hasn't even called his disciples yet. Very beginning, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what does he say? As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Now who is he talking about here? John the Baptist, very good. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, is he having them repent to confess of their sins so that they would believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus at this point? Is that John's message? Well, no. I mean, Jesus hadn't done any of that yet. But they are still baptizing for repentance of sins, which at this point would have been return to the way of Moses. Return to Judaism. Return to the way of holiness as it's been laid out through Jewish history. So that's what he's saying. It's a return. It is a repentance to something. If we jump down to verse 14, now we'll... We'll read a little bit about John. John ends up getting arrested because the person who is um, in charge at this point, the king has basically married his uncle's wife and killed his uncle so he could marry her. And there is a great uproar among uh, the Jews. Like this is just the worst thing you can do. <laughs> like you, you do not covet your neighbor's wife. I mean, that's one of the Ten Commandments, right? You do not covet especially your uncle's wife. And so it's one of the, the worst sins in their minds that they could have committed. And John's out there just talking about it, which is interesting. Uh, there is a place for compliance in Christianity, and there is a place for noncompliance in Christianity. The, the idea that we never speak against anything that's wrong um, because, hey, they're just doing their own thing, that is not a biblical concept. The way we speak against things that are wrong really does matter, and Jesus gives us plenty of uh, ways for us to know how to do that. But John was speaking against something that was wrong, and he ends up losing his life as a result of it. And Mark 1, 14, it says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the what? The gospel of God. So it sounds like what he's going to say next is really, really important in this regard, isn't it? So it is this gospel of God. And saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now who has John at this point, or excuse me, Jesus, who has Jesus at this point told that what he's going to do is be betrayed, die on the cross, rise from the dead, and then ascend to heaven? Who knows this at this point of the story? Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit. Trinity thing. But no one else knows that. 
So perhaps one of the reasons that people struggle today with believing that faith is real and that God is actually alive and that he can really engage and interact in our lives and that we can have an exciting, life-giving, life-changing relationship with him because we've been chasing the gospel that Jesus himself wasn't actually proclaiming, at least not in the way we understand it. Read that again. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now he'll speak to this even more directly if you jump down to chapter 17 of Luke. It says, being asked by a Pharisee when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there Behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So literally, the gospel is the coming of the kingdom of God to us. This is the gospel. Now, that is a super simplified way of describing it, right? There's way more to it than that. But if we're looking for anything other than that, we don't really want the gospel. Which means if we're not looking for the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven, we talked about the rhythm of prayer and that the fact that they would pray three times a day the uh, Lord's Prayer. Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, you'll find, depending on your translation and depending on the author, kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven are interchangeable. It's the same thing. Kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven are the same. Now, this is where we begin to go wrong is by misunderstanding what Jesus is actually saying is good news. He's saying the good news is that the kingdom of God is here, not coming. And this is not going to come when Jesus returns the second time. He's saying to these Pharisees, it's here right now because I'm here right now. That, that is what our good news is. So the kingdom of God or heaven is it somewhere you go. It's something that has arrived through Jesus. It's here. You can experience it now. It's not just when you die. But it's something that's available to each one of us. And much of what Jesus teaches us about how we live our lives is to show other people exactly what that is going to look like. All right. Are you ready for a train wreck? Of course you are. Of course you are. Because Mark is the king of train wrecks. I'm going to tell you off the bat, I'm not the author of this. I'm totally stealing this from Tim Mackey, who is founder of the Bible Project. If you don't follow the Bible Project, you should. Doing incredible work understanding, re-exploring what was meant before we screwed it all up. Hmm? I don't know if people can see it online or not. There you go. Okay. Most people have this belief that the way that the gospel works is that you are going to either believe or not believe. And if you believe, you go where? And if you don't believe, you go where? Nobody wants to say it. 
Nobody wants to say it. We'll call this heaven. We'll call this hell. All right? Now, if you do good things, where does that push you towards? Yeah, like, I don't know, what's a good thing someone to get to heaven for? Okay, helping. Giving. Comforting. Okay, all right. Okay, I'm not going to ask you who, what you go to hell for because <laughs> I don't know what I'll get here. Murder, that's good. That's a good one most people in the room, I, I hope, are not guilty of. Like you murder, you're going to go to hell, right? And if you're good to people, you're going to go to heaven, right? So interestingly, when we go back and we read how God has created and worked, God in the beginning created what? The heavens, the earth, and hell. That's not how it goes, is it? It doesn't actually create hell in the beginning. In the beginning, everything is good. In fact, we're going to talk more about this throughout this series. The Bible actually says, as followers or non-followers of Jesus, we can either bring heaven or hell to earth because of our actions. So this is not actually biblical. It is not a biblical concept, and yet the vast majority of people, in America at least, but probably the world that have some experience with Christianity believe that's what Christianity is about. If you're good, you go to heaven, and if you're bad, you go to hell, and that's because of Jesus. And somewhere along the way, you need to believe and confess, but for the most part, you just need to what's good. You remember when we talked about this, we went through the series of Genesis, and we have kind of the multiverse, which is cool for our comic uh, book fans in here. We have the multiverse in the beginning. We think of, we'll say this is heaven and this is earth. Two separate things. God created the heaven. God created the earth. But what we find is that is not true either. What we have is God created earth and God walked in the garden and talked in the garden and was there and saw them and they saw him. And what you actually have is you have heaven and, you can't read this, heaven and earth are together, overlapped. You have the kingdom of heaven and we have the kingdom of earth as two things that are completely overlapped in which God and humanity walked together and God saw that all he had created and it was good and God loved us and we loved God and life was good. And then a choice was made. And God allowed that choice because in the midst of this overlapping uh, heaven and earth, we had a tree It's like a person. Don't know why. Train right begins. 
And he put a tree there and he says, I'm going to give you the opportunity to choose whether we continue in the way we are going or I'm going to let you choose what's good and bad for yourself. And we call that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the serpent slithers in and uh, talks to Eve and Eve talks to Adam and they eat from the tree and sin enters. And then what happens? This goes away. kicked out of the garden. Our relationship with creation changes. We have the earth, and where is God? Where is the kingdom of heaven? Gone, right? This is where we have the separation of the two kingdoms. And this is the reality of where we live today a kingdom of earth in which we are waiting for the kingdom of God to come back and restore. But God in his love and the fact that he has cared for us from that moment on, this actually isn't biblical either. Because actually there is still an overlapping of heaven or the kingdom of God and earth. Now, in the Old Testament... This overlapping is the tabernacle. And God comes and he lives in the tabernacle amongst his people, right? Later that would become the temple. Then he would live in the Holy of Holies. And there was this whole thing about how you would go in, the, only the high priest would go in once a year into the Holy of Holies. And if he wasn't pure, he hadn't gone through all the rites of purification. He wasn't pure before God, he would die. And they'd have to drag him out by, with a rope and then send the next guy in. And hopefully he was more pure than the last guy. Right? It was in the tabernacle. Then we move into the New Testament, and now we have Jesus. Jesus is now, the kingdom of God has come and has intersected the kingdom of earth, and Jesus is now here with us, and so now we're having this intersection. And then if we go through and we read the words of Jesus, and what Jesus says is going to happen if we actually do follow him, he says, I'm going to leave someone here with you. And who is that? the Holy Spirit. And so then we have this ghost there. We'll call him the ghost. The ghost. It's supposed to be the Holy Spirit. I know it's bad. I'm really bad at these things. Now every person who follows Jesus has the Holy Spirit within them and you yourself are an intersection of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of earth right here, right now. You should be. That's what the Holy Spirit is. It is God who has come to dwell within you. So now you are that intersection. And then if we go through and we read what's going to happen in Revelation, Revelation says when Jesus returns, he's going to do something very specific. And what is that? There's going to be a new what? And a new what? He actually says the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is going to come down onto the earth, and there will be a new kingdom of God, a new kingdom of heaven, and a new kingdom of earth, which means we will go back to where we were in the garden where they are in one place. And Jesus is saying this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That the kingdom has come back to the earth through Jesus Christ. Now, is that good news for you? Um, Maybe, maybe not. It may not be the news you were looking for. 
And the reality is, this is not the news a lot of people who go to church every single week want. Because the news we want, let's be honest, I want it too. It's not me, I'm better than you. I want it too. The news we want is, God, this magnificent, omnipotent, omniscient, um, everything else being is looking down on my life and he's making sure I'm taken care of, right? If we're honest, isn't that what we want? That's why most of our prayers are something like this. God, please help me. God, please rescue me. God, please save me. God, please, I messed up again. God, please don't let this happen to me. Now, surely not all our prayers are that way. We do pray good prayers, But that's why we pray those prayers, is because we're not actually looking for what God has already done. We're looking for God to do something for us. And the problem with the mentality that there's a heaven and an earth, and the gospel is about, um, if I do enough good things, I get to go to heaven. And and if I'm good enough, God will answer my prayers. And if if I believe enough, then bad things won't happen to me. I'll never get sick. I'll never be poor. I'll never struggle. No one will ever betray me. No one ever will hurt me because I'm good and God's taking care of me. Who is the center of that story? Me. And yet this is what the, how the gospel is taught. Not exactly in those words because clearly that sounds terrible. That is how we teach the gospel. So what is, what is the good news? This is what Jesus says. Number one, he says, God's kingdom and person has arrived in the world to address a problem. Now, what is the problem? We call it sin. We call it evil. The problem of hell. The problem of Satan. The problem of choosing a way other than God's way of what is good and evil. There's a problem. And that problem has had terrible consequences on us. It breaks our relationships. It it, it messes up who we think we are. Our dignity falls to the wayside. We no longer are experiencing community the way we're supposed to experience. We're no longer experiencing God the way we're supposed to experience Him. Our focus is on ourselves all the time. And it messes us up. And it's a problem. What we'll find is that hell is not just described as a place. By the way, where is hell? Well, it's the absence of presence of God. But, I mean, when you read it in the Bible, it's in the earth, right? It's somewhere in the earth. So at some point, if that were true, I, I don't think so either, but at some point, if that were true, but that's how the Bible describes it, if that were true and the kingdom of God is coming so that there's a new heaven and a new earth, what cannot be here? Because hell is the problem. When Jesus returns, he's forever solving a problem, which is to return us to where he originally created us to live with him before the fall in the garden. Is that good news to us? Well, for some, yes. For some, no. For some, I'm not sure yet. I'm still not sure if, if, if Mark's a heretic up there right now. Right? What Jesus is saying in Mark and Luke, that this is the gospel, that the kingdom of God is at hand. And the way he says it more directly to the Pharisees is, I am here, so the kingdom of God is here. 
God's kingdom and person have arrived in the world to address a problem. This is the good news. Number two, the good news. The problem is sin or evil or hell that destroys people, relationships, and contaminates a good creation. This is where we go back, and again, if you want some more biblical background for this, go read the law. The law was given to a group of people that for generations did not govern themselves. They did not know how to deal with each other. They did not know how to live in community with each other. They did not know how to even own stuff because they didn't own anything. And so much of the law is how do you? How are you a good community member? Don't covet your neighbor's wife. Don't murder, right? But also, don't worship anyone other than me. There are no gods before me. We go back and we look and we break down the law, which most people won't read because it's a very boring book. And I agree, it's a very boring book. But if you read, you'll find out, and I've shared this with you before, if you have an ox and your neighbor's got a hole in his yard and he knows he's got a hole in his yard and your ox falls in the hole, he should pay you back for your ox. That's the Bible. Not very spiritual, is it? Very good for community, though. And if... They've got a hole in their yard. This is how serious it gets. If they have a hole in their yard and another person's ox fell in the hole and got hurt or died, then they've got to pay them back for the ox. But if they still don't fix the hole and somebody else's ox falls in the hole and gets hurt or dies, now the guy's got to be, he's got to die. That's really a law. Like if you've got a hole in your field and the second time an ox falls in it and gets hurt or dies, then that person is to be put to death. That seemed very, very extreme to me. I don't know about you. I don't want to own any ox for this very reason, right? I don't, I don't want to have this problem. I don't want to be responsible for somebody else. If I got a hole in my yard, I need to fix it because I don't want somebody to come and kill me, right? It seems very, very extreme. But the point is, is how do you, how do you live with each other? How do we live with each other the way God intended for us to live with each other? Which is why He talks so much about love. This is how they're going to know you're following me because you've experienced the kingdom of God and when you experience the kingdom of God, you're going to love each other. We've got to put all the pieces together throughout all of Scripture to arrive at what God is really saying to us about the gospel. And the gospel is not just that Jesus died on the cross because a person can believe all that stuff and not care anything about the kingdom of God. And that's where we find ourselves today. The problem is sin, evil, and hell that destroys people. And and even this is and quite honestly, this is why we have so much of a struggle, cultural struggle right now, is because we can't all agree on what is good and bad. Because we all choose for ourselves. Yeah. So I may say you shouldn't do that. That destroys your dignity. Well, you may disagree with me on that. You may say, well, no, I don't think that destroys my dignity at all. And so This is one of the reasons we have so much Scripture, and we need to read so much Scripture. Third thing. Jesus took on all of our sin, all of the evil of all existence, of all time. He took on hell, everything, to get us back to the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, depending on how you read that. He did take all that on. So when he died for our sins, this is what he's talking about. He took it all on. And one of the reasons he took it on, 
or the reason He took it on is because we bear His image. We were created in His image. Therefore, He's loved. He's chosen to love us. He chose to come. He chose to be a, a, a man acquainted, acquainted with much grief. He was stricken. He was killed. He went through all of that because He loves us and He loves us because we bear His image. And He chose to love us which is why we can look at someone we completely disagree with and still love them. We can look at our enemies and love them. We can look at somebody and we think they are the worst sinner on the planet. And believe me, Christians, we know who we think the worst sinners on the planet are, but we can still love them. That's what Jesus said to do. But see, when we make it about belief and Jesus died for us and we either got to do good things and go to heaven or bad things and go to hell, I look at somebody doing bad things and I say, you're going to hell. Rather than looking at myself, what are the ways I'm bringing hell to the people around me? We're going we're gonna to unpack that. That needs more unpacking. We're going to unpack that more during this series. We find that in James, by the way, and some other places. So again, is why we have to read all of Scripture and we have to go back and why uncertainty will guide you into truth because that's what the Holy Spirit does. But when you adopt what someone has told you and you never stop and ask God and put together the pieces of His Word, which means you have to read all of His Word, you can miss this, and we have. We have. Heaven is here to invade earth. Heaven is here to confront sin. Heaven is here to help us return to the people that He created us to be in the garden. He's here to return us to that. And while we can return as a portion of that now, we won't fully return to that until He returns again. And then there is a new heaven and a new earth, which we talk about heaven being somewhere up in the clouds, but Scripture actually says heaven's coming here. Now, this is why I don't have a problem with uncertainty. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know how to rationalize that. I don't know what that, what, how, what happens when we die, fixed and all that, but I don't have to because I have found that the kingdom of God is better than the kingdom of earth, and that's where I want to live. And I believe that's one of the reasons that faith has been so important for me and so important for many of you is you, you decided the kingdom of the earth wasn't all that great. A lot of pain in the kingdom of the earth. There's a lot of treating people horribly in the kingdom of the earth. And even after we try to get all our things to give us the best life we could possibly have, at the end of the day, we look back and we're disappointed because it wasn't all that great. It's one of the reasons I think Jesus says it's harder for a rich man to go through the... through it, It's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than a camel to go through the eye of an eagle because a rich man may have a pretty darn good life and doesn't ever look for anything different. They're certain that they can take care of their life and pay for the things that they want. And you know what? Life is pretty good. I, I'm not ever taken advantage of. You know, I don't ever wonder if I'm going to have another meal. I'm not imprisoned. Well, I mean, some of them are, but I'm not imprisoned. I, you know, I, I'm okay. But that's not the case for everybody. Just because you have money doesn't disqualify you from the kingdom of heaven. It, but, but once we're okay with this reality of the kingdom of earth, we don't know God. And so many of us are okay with the kingdom of earth. And that's a problem. Because that's not the gospel. And that's not what we're built around. But a person who has suffered, a person who has hurt, a person who has experienced bad things, a person then, they ask different questions than a person that everything's going just fine. 
Jesus says, those are the people I'm here for. And those are the people you should be here for. And it's not that a person of means can't be in the kingdom of God or that we shouldn't be in community with them or our churches should only be full of poor people whose lives are falling apart. That's not at all what Jesus is saying. But it does mean you had to come to a place where you decided the kingdom of God is a way better prospect than the kingdom of heaven. And if we read again through Scripture to understand how God is working, you will come to that realization not just because you heard a preacher or you read the Bible or you read a good book or saw a good movie. It's because God is convicting you through the Holy Spirit to tell you there's something better. There's something better. And the fourth thing. I'm done. I'm, I'm, I'm done. But the fourth thing. We can choose this new kingdom by confessing our sin, repenting of our sinful ways, and accepting Jesus' gift of salvation and following him. So where does repentance fit in all of this? Because I, by my very nature, function in the kingdom of the earth very well. If I am about the kingdom of God, I have to turn from my most natural basic instincts to follow his way. Which is why Jesus says, if you follow me, he never says you're going to be comfortable. In fact, he says you're going to suffer. He never says, um, you know, I'm going to make sure you that everything goes your way. In fact, he says, man, people are going to treat you terribly and they're not even going to, things are not going to go your way. Because he says there's something better than all of that. Repentance is the way we turn from the kingdom of the earth, and we embrace the kingdom of God. And this is why Jesus says, at the end of the day, if you follow me, the thing that's going to happen is you're going to become more like me. You're going to conform to my image. And it doesn't mean that we're a people of perpetual suffering, although there's a decent amount of suffering a person does. One of the rhythms we talked about was how do we deal with suffering? It's not that we embrace it and we want it and we seek it out. I don't seek out suffering. I hate it. I hate suffering we learn how to respond to it because we recognize this is attention until the kingdom of God, the kingdom of earth are one again. The tension we're going to struggle with. We look at the end of the story. The end of the story says that hell has to be removed from this idea of it being on earth. But the hell is reserved for those who given the option to live within the kingdom of God, say, that's not good news to me. So when people say, how can a good God send people to hell? Because He doesn't. Because we, we choose it. And hell is in many ways of our own making. Hell is reserved for those that say, this kingdom of God is not good news. Which leaves us to, am I just giving you some verbal gymnastics here to sound good and interesting? Because I'll be honest, church people and preachers are good at that. I just want something to sound new and different, and nothing's new and different. I, I'm not trying to do that. One of the things we're going to have to address and deal with, and what we've been talking about now for, for months and years here, is... <clears throat> How does this good news change me? Does it? Do I put on a face of change 
but inside I know it's not really there. How does it really change us? Because if this is good news, it changes everything. It changes everything. It changes how we deal with each other. It changes how we spend our time. It changes how we respond to a pandemic. Like I, I know a lot of people that I think very highly of that are godly, godly people who are struggling right now. But they're not struggling because of the pandemic. They're struggling because of the effect of the pandemic on people that they care about. And I'm one of those. I'm one of those. I know a lot of pastors who are struggling right now. But I've not one at one point been scared of the pandemic. I don't want my kids to get sick up, sick, and die. I don't want them to die. But if I do, it's okay because, hey, I found the kingdom of God. We deal with stressful situations differently. We're comforted in times when other people are wondering, how, how are they so stable? It doesn't mean we don't struggle especially when we see the effect of the kingdom of earth on people we care about or on ourselves because we struggle with that too. By the way, if you need more justification for what I'm talking about, the parable of the soils. If the seeds plant it, good news. And it sprouts in good soil and it grows. But when it's thrown around the thorns, oh yeah, that's good. Earth comes in. And just squeezes it out of us. We just are too focused on the kingdom of I just can't. I mean, the kingdom of God is good. The earth is so everywhere. It's interesting that Paul says he had a thorn in the flesh and he kept asking God to remove it and he didn't. Increasingly stopped thinking that that was a physical ailment and it was him dealing with the kingdom of earth in his life. Because that's exactly what Jesus said in the parable. The thorns come in and choke it out. Paul said, I got a thorn. I asked God to remove it and he didn't. I think he, he struggled with this, just like I do, just like you do. You, you don't enter into the kingdom of God today on this earth and never struggle with it again. I mean, we do. We struggle with it. How is this good news different from the good news we usually hear in Christian circles? And this is why so many people can proclaim to believe and they, you see no fruit whatsoever in their life because they've accepted a different good news. So I would ask you this as we close. How are you living out the good news in your life? God is here. And there's no way for me in these few minutes to unpack this perfectly. That's why the kingdom of God is described as a mystery. That's why Paul says, you know, we're here and we're changed, but right now it's like we're looking through a, a, a mirror or a window dimly lit. We still don't fully see clearly, but one day when Jesus returns, we will see clearly. There's a mystery to this. There's a struggle to this. And there's a place for you that you are going to have to wrestle with your salvation, I think that's in the Bible too, by the way. We'll have to work out our salvation. Now, this doesn't in any way change the immense amount of grace that we've come to love about the gospel. This is still all as a result of grace. Nor does this change mercy. 
because this is God's mercy on us. Nor does this change the fact that Jesus died on the cross and he rose from the dead. None of that changes. But the good news is more than just believing that stuff. Experiencing it and living it. I will leave you with this question. What experiences have changed you? For me, I had an experience when I was 15 year old. 15 years old, I experienced Jesus and I was never the same again. I've had other experiences that have changed me too. I was, uh, you know, the, you remember the THX deep note sound that would begin of some of Lucasfilm's movies? You know, sound just like it. I remember the first time I heard that, the Star Wars. And that came over those theater speakers and it changed me. I've been chasing that sound in my own home ever since. And I'm 49 years old, still chasing it. I mean, that's silly. But experiences change us. How has the experience of the kingdom of God changed you? If it's good news to you, it will change you. If you're struggling with this whole topic, whole sermon, I'd love to talk with you. And let's work it out together. And if you feel I've missed something, I've embraced a level of uncertainty in my life, and it feels very healthy. But I don't doubt God. And that's very healthy too. Father, I pray for those in this room that are struggling. They've heard one good news throughout their lives and maybe the good news that you've been telling, the good news that you said yourself was the good news, is just a little bit of a foreign concept to them. Or maybe we even know it, we've read it, and we believe it, but it's not really changed us. We're not really sure that's the good news we're looking for. But God, you have given us your spirit so we can hear from you. I pray that we would hear from you. I pray that, not that we would just be more certain, I pray our uncertainty would grow. I pray we would stop making the gospel about us and make it about you because it is about you. I thank you that you have invited us to be a part of it. I pray for those in this room and they are hurting and they are or that person that Jesus was talking about, they have given up on the kingdom of earth. It has disappointed. It has hurt. They are broken. Their relationships are broken. Maybe their uh, marriage or relationship with a family member or friend is broken. God, you've come to restore us. Come to do a good work in us. Come so that we would bear fruit. Pray that that's the good news that changes us. Father, I thank you for the good news you've given. I thank you that you came. Even when we chose our own way and we rejected you, you still came. You sought after us. You gave yourself up to die on a cross. I thank you that you are who you said you are, the Son of God, who walked out of that tomb, ascended into heaven and said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Father, let us live today as if the kingdom of God is here now. And let us be those that bring the kingdom of God to others. In Jesus' name we pray.